Welcome to Smuggling Hope, Episode 11, Flypaper. There is nothing like suspense and anxiety for barricading a human's mind against the enemy. He wants men to be concerned with what they do, but our business is to keep them thinking about what will happen to them. Wormwood in C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters. In Aramaic, the name Beazelbub is a, a term for a fly. They say the Lord of the Flies, but it's a very specific type of fly. It's the fly that keeps coming back over and over and over again. So imagine you are laying in bed on your vacation and the fly is in your bedroom and keeps landing on your nose and irritating you. It's not a big issue, but it's just enough to screw with your sleep. It's just enough to get you not to pay attention, just enough to upset you. That's what we're, that's how evil operates. In some ways, in a slow and steady way. It's not huge turns and huge upsets. It's really slow, almost, uh, you know, un unawares. I think a lot of people just don't understand that the evil one is very, very patient. And this life is very, very short. And we have come to thinking that we own and are in possession of the 24 hours of each day. That puts us at a tactical disadvantage if you think about a spiritual battle, because we are constantly worried about what's going to happen to us. And, you know, in general, um, we are not necessarily focused on how we're behaving or increasing in virtue. We're not where God lives. He constantly wants to put us away from God. Anybody but Jesus Christ, any religion but Roman Catholicism, that'll do for him. So this episode is not going to be some uh, history or stories about diabolic. Like I said in the, in the prologue here is evil likes to be talked about. And frankly, we do not overcome evil by talking about it, complaining about it, hypothesizing about it, or even necessarily studying it in a topographic way, you know, in the, in the form of uh, demonology. Although this can be fascinating, there is a danger and a seductiveness with evil. Evil is, for the most part, sexy. We like horror movies. We click on the things that are bad, evil, destructive, because that's kind of how our minds are in a fallen way. So we need to elevate our minds, protect them, and that is the point of this episode. Now, you might have just been wondering, did you just hear a rooster in the background? And the answer, frankly, is absolutely. Today, apparently, my... Uh, my rooster is going to be my co-host. It's the first time that I've had a co-host, and unfortunately, he's unavoidable. Uh, so, you know, but, uh, you know, hopefully it's a good sign. So first off, the word demon means divider. It is Greek for, the, for, for divider. And so remember that these evil forces, they're always trying to divide us, divide us from ourselves from God, from our spouses. When they infiltrate the church, they divide the church. The spirit of division is where it's at, and the spirit of disobedience is where there is disobedience, there is division, and the more there is division, people become weaker and can no longer recognize the face of God in their community, their family, or even in themselves, because we start to lie and prostitute our minds. So what do we do with the, this division? Well, one of the big things is we have to figure out how to reduce our pride. And as I've said on this podcast multiple times, one of the greatest ways we can reduce our pride, and there's my co-host, the, the best way we can reduce our pride is by practicing gratitude and cultivating humility. 
humility through time spent in prayer with God. If we want to reflect on the way that God has brought us through so much already, seeing all the things that God is giving us on a daily basis so that we can start to see the good in our life, see the good in our significant other, our family, our boss at work, our children, and so that we can kind of see those uh, those fingerprints of God everywhere so we don't get so reliant on ourselves. The more we become reliant on ourselves, the more we will become judgmental, the harder it will be for us to be close with one another. So we really want to work on ways to reduce this pride. And like I said, you know, one of the, the greatest things that people can do um, is, is to pray. And as you pray, whether it's in front of the Blessed Sacrament or in the quiet of your home, so that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ that informs your, uh, you know, the, the, the way that your day is going. Um, and if you don't know Jesus Christ very well, start with the Gospels and the Bible. Uh, read about who he is, what he said to his friends, what he said about his enemies, all of that. You know, get familiar with that. And, you know, start to see the good and participate in it. One of the ways we can do that is by having a servant's heart and serving our family. You know, his parents serving their spouses children serving their parents. If you're at work looking for a way to make a difference, how can I make a difference in the shared universal pain? I don't care if you work at the post office. I don't care if you work at a hospital. I don't care if you're a stay-at-home mom. There are difficulties in all places. And if we want to remove division, we then start to figure out how to serve the moment. And what happens is we start to move into a space where we cultivate patience. So those people listening to this podcast, those that deal with anger or righteous anger or judgment of all sorts, or even depression, because that's a side effect of this too, look for ways to cultivate patience. And so I want you to think that the devil always gives us two temptations, right? Two temptations. And there's one temptation, you know, when it comes to judgment oftentimes, and the one temptation is to serve other people, to really be obsessed with trying to serve other people, please other people. And then we can kind of do too much and then we get frustrated or we get attached to the expectations with people and then we get bitter or we get angry or we get resentful. And so that's a one temptation. And the other temptation now that we've been hurt and feel resentful because people have taken advantage of us is really just to take care of ourselves. It's all about me, baby. All about me. I got to be me. I got to be free. Right. Which is in many ways the case we see in so much divorce is people get very hurt. They do so much and then they just pull back completely and they're done. You know, the, the resentment comes in and they're done. And they, they do everything under their power, you know, come hell or high water to get out of the marriage. But that other, that other temptation, that temptation into self, that temptation to preserve the self because you're afraid of being hurt, that's also a temptation. And again, the, the, the devil's on both sides, right? You know, serve everybody. Yeah, serve everybody or just protect yourself. Either way. So we need to find the middle way. The middle way is patience, and patience is service to the moment. Patience is exiting yourself and trying to do what it is that is appropriate in the moment, doing what the moment needs, serving it. Because patience is constructive action in the moment without judgment. I'll say that again for those of you who are taking notes, because I, I know you love taking notes, right? So, but patience is active participation, constructive participation in the moment as it is without judgment. It is not some static thing. It is not some passive thing. There is an engaged activity. You are always becoming more alive. Have you ever wondered what the leading cause of divorce is? 
It's not addiction, infidelity, lack of intimacy, or incompatibility. It's actually criticism. Criticism underlies all the behaviors that lead to divorce. Criticism kills connection between married couples. If you want to learn ways to stop criticizing and start connecting with your spouse, check out heartsrenewed.org for dynamic exercises and how to shape new conversations with your spouse that will give you the kind of marriage you signed up for, all from the comfort of your home. So as we practice patience, what we produce in our culture, in our family culture, in our personhood, in our work environment is peace because we start providing and producing what is missing in these places. Wherever there is tension, disruption, aggression, fear, means something is missing because evil is always a whole. It's a parasite. Evil only exists because there's goodness. You know, it, it's a parasitic experience. It is not something that exists on its own. Another really important factor in improving our connection and ending division and the temptation to division is to increase in honesty. And if you can't be honest, just at least don't lie. Don't say things that detract from you or you know allude to things that aren't real. Because uh, it just, again, goes back to boasting and, and tall tales and that disconnects us from reality. Lies remove our experience of reality. And believe it or not, if you think about lying, lying starts to spread fear. Because then people don't know what is true and then people become more anxious and afraid and it creates a whole community of fear. So whether it's in a work environment, whether it's in a, a dating relationship, whether it's a teacher with their students, and a lot of times we start out with the most noble intentions or we just, or, or they're pretty mundane. Like I just want the people to think I'm cool. So I'm going to make up the story or I'm going to leave this part out so they might not know the truth. These temptations though, they may seem like they're okay, but once we give in to them, they spread fear and confusion. And what do we see in our world? Lots of fear and confusion, right? And even when we know the truth, we almost can't accept it now. And you'll see that in relationships. When we finally are honest, after lying for so long, it's almost you know, difficult, super difficult for people to then accept us or the reality that we've uh, you know, amassed because of the deception. And one of the worst dimensions of the lying is that you're lonely. Nobody knows you and you have to keep acting and it's its own little personal hell. So if you're a young person, if you're an old person, it doesn't matter where you are on the spectrum, work on cultivating uh, honesty so that we, there, there is connection and people can feel safe with you. If you are a person who's really struggled with lying and deception in your personal relationships or, you know, for whatever the reason, you need to honestly start to become like your own politician, not by perpetuating lies, but by making promises and keeping them. Starting with promises to yourself. You said you were going to go to the gym, get up and go to the gym. You told your spouse that you were going to go and pick the kids up from school, pick up your kids from school. You said that you were going to pay this bill early, do it. Because if you start breaking your own uh, you know, commitments, you're going to break faith in yourself. And that's one of the worst things that can happen because then you're going to not believe that you can change. And again, then he's got you, got you in a different trap. So when we think about, you know, in, in many ways, the goodness that needs to repel the division and the temptations to division, see the good in people, practice gratitude, 
reflect on the hand of God in your life, that you've already been grossly overpaid by him and that he has preserved your life to this moment. Will the good for other people serve God in the present moment by doing what is loving and responsible? You know, make peace through patient activity wherever you are. And draw people to, to peace and responsibility. And lastly, like look at ways to increase and preserve honesty and to be upfront. Again, honesty will again circle back to maintaining your humility and make you uh, holier. Uh, not holier because you're wonderful, but because you're being honest. Humility, remember, is the truth and you're screwed up. And sometimes we have to say out loud, we're screwed up. And so again, when we think about this, especially when we when we think about division, think about how much there is this division away from the sacraments. We cannot recognize it. And why can we not recognize it? Well, because the other thing that he is just so good at, the Lord of the flies, is he's good at distraction, keeping us away from the things that are important by giving us lots of things we think are, are urgent, but they are almost always not priorities. There's a, an old uh, adage from almost all the mystics and saints that were uh, given a free tour of hell, right? So many saints over the history of the church were uh, given uh, access to see what hell looks like. And that image is always maybe a little bit different. It's always pretty horrid. But the thing that I find fascinating in all the reports from all the saints and mystics that have had these visions of hell is that they say the same thing about hell, uh, really two things. One there's a lot of people there. And the second thing is, is that most of the people there have something in common, which is they didn't believe it really existed. And I find that for whatever reason, kind of consoling, because hopefully the people listening to this podcast, you've prioritized your spiritual life. You believe that there is a spiritual life. So you're already, you know, moving at least closer to our Lord. But that's not enough. It's not enough to just have this knowledge. You have to respond to it. God's grace is free, but you have to be open to receiving it and, you know, working with it. It's kind of like, uh, you know, my kids like to drink chocolate milk, although it's bad for them and all that. And, but you've ever seen like a, you know, a, a little cup full of chocolate milk. In the beginning, it's just milk. And then you squeeze the Hershey's syrup into it or whatever your favorite type of, you know, uh, you know, uh, poison is. And you squeeze that, uh, you know, uh, brown liquid into it. And then it still looks no different, right? It looks no different. It looks like a cup of white milk until you get a spoon out and you stir it up. You have to be stirred up. And to do that, you have to know what's important and you have to be free of distractions. And the, the, the evil one loves to keep us from stirring up what God is trying to give us, trying to give us at every turn through you know, uh, you know, conversations with family, with strangers, with people who may not even be believers, but God is animating the speech. Uh, you know, it could be music you listen to. It could be events in the world, you, you know, your holy hour, your time spent in front of the Blessed Sacrament, your time at work, people in your family ministering to you or reaching out to you. But will you say yes to those opportunities? If we want to reduce distractions, though, we really need to get honest about what our priorities are. And then start to be clear about how we can show up to those priorities. Because like I said, we only have 24 hours in a day and we think that we possess them all. And again, this is a very patient and cunning enemy, far smarter than we will ever be in this life. 
And so we have to be dedicated to staying close to the things that are most important in a relationship with God, because the power, the power to really persevere in all of the, all, all of the spiritual life and in life in general to, at the end, maintain your humanity has to do with getting that power from a relationship with God. As Catholics, we are given the sacraments, and yet people still don't understand what the sacraments are. There's massive amounts of confusion. Uh, you know, I, at this time of this this recording, I would say that at least thirty uh, percent of Catholics believe in the real presence of the Eucharist, but I would say that that dwindles oftentimes, and even priests themselves doubt the presence of the Eucharist. And yet, that's what Christ said it was: "This is my body." And yet, again, why does you know? Why does the evil one attack us, Catholics specifically? Well, because we have the real presence. We have the power of that grace flowing into our churches and our tabernacles. And why not confuse everybody and censor it and, and give us fifth generation warfare of you know, multiple perspectives and a lot of like uh, you know, confusion to delude our senses and awareness of that Jesus Christ is there in the tabernacle. Uh, on a on a practical note, record your top five to six priorities. And but I want you to do a little bit of something different. I need you to anticipate that you'll be dead in a week. What is it really that will be most important? And it's important that you do that first dimension first, which is to recognize that you're going to die, because a lot of people don't realize that they think they're going to live forever. I don't care. Some people are very old and they still don't believe they're going to die. Some people have been almost killed multiple times, and yet they still don't really believe it's going to happen to them. So figure out what your priorities are in relation to the reality that you will die. And if I'm going to die in a week, what are the most important things that I do? And then get after it. If you haven't gone to confession in a while, get after it. If you don't really know a lot of these concepts I'm talking about, maybe you're not even a Catholic person, figure out what the truth is. Figure out what all this is about. Figure out, like, you know, don't, don't be, you know, seduced by, like, the, the amassing intellectual nonsense. People are being educated into stupidity on, uh, stupidity on every level, you know, so that we can be good old-fashioned consumers, you know, and, and, trans, and, and, you know and, and no longer question what's going on in any level of our life. And, you know, again, figure out what the truth is. Get to the bottom of it. And you'll know what the truth is because it will give you peace. Not ignorance, but peace. And once you have peace, you will want to share that with other people. And you'll want to share the truth with other people. But oftentimes I feel like the sacraments, especially, they're like technology that people don't understand. It's almost as if I gave an iPhone to some, you know, some, some, you know, some pilgrim back in like 1560. They don't even know what they're handling. They have no idea what it is. People don't understand the Eucharist. They don't understand confession or reconciliation. They don't understand, uh, you know, what it means to be confirmed. It's like Catholic graduation. I was confirmed. And I don't. I don't think almost ninety-five percent of the people I was confirmed with even practice the faith at all. So again, get rid of the distractions. Figure out what's important and look into the eyes of death and, and recognize you'll be gone at some point. And what will be the most important things? What will be the things that you value. Because when we live with less distraction, we live with both intentionality and with less regret. You know, when we do all the psychological metrics that help us to determine whether or not someone's lived a successful life, 
and, and Bronnie Ware, who was a palliative care nurse back in the 90s, I believe, she wrote a fantastic book on the regrets of the dying. And if you get a chance, read it or give it to somebody that you care about. But to, 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 to summarize it is essentially people who live the best life, to tell if you were successful is you live life with the least amount of regret. If you're living life with regret, then today, starting today, prioritize your life so that there are no regrets that go forward. Okay, be free of that. And be free of distractions. You know, that fly keeps coming and bothering you and telling you that you stink or that you're a terrible person or you're a horrible whatever. Those distractions that keep ruminating, you know, keep ruminating. You need to kind of, you know, find yourself to the present with the priorities and start moving towards the person that you want to be. And get clarity over the person that you want to be because that way those distractions that, 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 that fly will not keep landing on you. And if it does, you're not going to even notice it so much because it's not what you've got to focus on. You're focused on who you're going to become. You're not focused on the nonsense in the world so much as you're trying to change yourself so that the world can change. You're not going to be so angry because you will have declared war on yourself. And because of that, you will have peace. Hi, it's Dan. I hope you're enjoying today's show. If you want to take your marriage to the next level, download a copy of my free ebook, Love Finds a Way. In it, you'll find six key principles to start strengthening your marriage. Just click the link in the episode description. Share it with others. Because Catholic marriages should be lighthouses in the dark times we live in. Now back to the show. Now the... The other level that the uh, the enemy seems to work on people is through discouragement. And, you know, now that you've been divided and distracted, why not discourage you? Because after all, if you put all your hope in yourself, what better way to take you down than more and more self-reliance or self-condemnation? Those seem to be very common right now in terms of temptation. You know, the, the self-reliance, I have all the answers. I know I'm good. I'm okay. I've got, I'm the righteous person, or there's the, you know, the self-condemnation. I'm a terrible person. I'm a loser. I'm no good. Both of those are useless. We, we, we need to be aware that discouragement comes from pride, this belief that somehow we are the requirement for our uh, holiness, our success, and whatnot, and we cannot rely on ourselves. Um, to do that is, is uh, silly. In order that we need not be discouraged, it's important that we measure what we can control. We cannot control whether or not the government lies to us, whether we get sick, whether our lover betrays us. We cannot control how we're going to feel at the end of this podcast. Believe it or not, you only have four things that you really control. You control what you say, what you do, your perspective on life, and your attitude. Everything else is, for the most part, out of your control. Now, I know you wish that, it, I mean, people would like to argue that maybe there's more, but the truth is you do not control how you think. Your thinking in a lot of ways is automatic. Your unconscious mind does more of your thinking than you'd like to believe. And we do not control how we feel. To, to think that we can control how we feel is to make yourself a hopeless neurotic. If you feel sad, if you try to control that, you're going to get depressed. And so it's important that we measure what we can control. And one of the things that you know, that I, I like to go over with people is to have what we call a sphere of self-reinforcement, that we have a list of the behaviors that are supportive of the person that we want to be, that we can access and achieve. 
Just as if a soldier who goes out to battle every day, he cleans his uniforms, he reads his Bible, he goes for a five-mile run, he cleans his weapon, he surveys the, the map of, of the territory he's going to, you know, um, be, be uh, moving on patrol. The, the same thing, we have to have a series of behaviors that give us confidence that are consistent with the mission of our life. And so we have to be clear, what are the things that we can control that are worth measuring and set our life up so that we are um, in that state where we're, we're again, not handing off our, our control to, to things that are far beyond our, our, uh, our conscious control, right? Giving our, 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 our inner states and our, um, our, our peace to the world or other people, making other people our gods, making our boss our god, making the government our god, making whoever it is, the media our god, and then you're going to be very discouraged very easily because, well, you're, you know, you're not in control of any of that. And so it's very important that we learn to accept the things that we cannot change, right? And so the more that acceptance increases, suffering decreases because we get rid of fantasy and we get rid of fear and we are left with reality. And reality is where we can actually do something. We can take what's in front of us. But we need to extinguish these these uh these movements to fantasy you know oh you know you know the, this the fanciful ideas that everything is awesome and these fears like that everything is terrible and the world is going to hell and the aliens are coming to get us because again these two extremes are always always in opposition to reality reality is the narrow path and so we must train our minds to serve the moment that we're in because to, to leave that moment is to, to ruin our, our, our ability to have peace and to be thrown around uh, like a rag doll with temptations. Now, the, the last D in this, uh, you, know, uh, you know, quadro of, uh, of desolation here is the, what I would call despair, right? The movement of the enemy is always to get you to give up. So I want to maybe give you a story um, from many years ago, and you know, during the World War, uh, you know, two era, there was a problem in the the death camps in Auschwitz, and what had happened was that the prisoners, um, the the prisoners, both the Christian and the Jewish prisoners, were committing suicide at a very high rate. And how they would do that was they would run to the fence, and this was winter. And the reason why they had grown very despairing is that. They had hopes that they could be free and be with their families for the holidays of you know, Hanukkah and, and Christmas, but that, that didn't seem like it was going to happen at all. And so they had given up all hope and were killing themselves by the dozens every day. And this was a problem for the Nazis because the Nazis, obviously, they um, you know uh, used them for their work, right? Their workforce was uh, the prisoners. And so the more prisoners that died, the less workforce they had. So they had to figure out a way to deal with this problem of uh, increasing suicide in the camp. And so they found out that there was a psychiatrist in, in the camp and, you know, they, they dragged him into the, the capo's office and they demanded that he solve this problem, that he stop, you know, the suicide epidemic in the, the camp. And um, he, he was forced into it. They said they would kill his wife and his parents who were in Dachau if he didn't agree. And so he regretfully agreed and said that he would, you know, stop the uh, suicidal uh, tendencies of his comrades in, 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 in the concentration camp. And so within two weeks or so, um, the, the rate of death in the camp by suicide 
uh, was reduced almost to virtually none. And the Nazis were shocked by this and very upset because obviously you can't please these guys. And so they brought poor Dr. Vic in uh, a second time now. They, they brought him in and to question him and ask him, well, what are you doing? What are you doing? Because these people are no longer killing themselves. What hope did you offer them? What are you doing with these, these prisoners to make them not want to die anymore? And he said, what I do is very simple. I hear from you know, the, the people in the camp that one of my brothers or sisters is thinking of dying and killing themselves. And I go to them and I run to the barracks and I look at them and say, something awaits you after this. And saying to them that something awaits them after this is enough for them to survive another day in the hell that you put us through. And I find that to be very powerful. Obviously, that, that psychiatrist, his name is Viktor Frankl. If you've never uh, heard of him or Man's Search for Meaning or you know, latter work from what we call logotherapy, which is the therapy that focuses on the development and sustenance of meaning, he, 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 he developed that. You know, or I would say discovered that in the, the hell of the concentration camp. But it, the, the enemy works by pro providing you with no ability to think or even to discover or to anticipate, anticipate that there's anything that awaits you after this, that this is all there is. All that, all that is is drudgery. All that is is misery. All there is is corruption in the church and the government. All there is is heartbreak in your relationships. All there is is your own failings and you're a failure. And so there's this constant movement to give up and to accuse, accuse you, accuse you over and over again and convince you there's nothing there. There's nothing. There's no one coming for you. And so people become much more, um, uh, you know, you know in, in that state of despair. And so one way that we need to focus on, you know, uh, focus our minds to escape from that temptation of despair is really to start to meditate on and reflect on you know heaven and the joy of, of what heaven is and how do we do that well practically we have to start doing things that are little acts of love both for ourselves and for other people because that will that provides the brain with actual experiences whereby we are ridding ourselves of judgment and we are then starting to make ourselves more aware of and accepting of the joy of life so for instance you know years ago there was a a woman that I had met and she had had four little kids and the four little kids obviously took a toll on her and she was quite upset. And I had asked her, you know, um, you know, what would you do for yourself if you, if you, if you really loved yourself? I mean, if you had a friend and they, she had four little kids like you do and you know, work around the house as much and taking care of your husband and all these things and you, what would you do to, uh, you know, uh, for your friend, what would you encourage your friend to do to love herself? And she said, well, I would, I would tell her to go take a bath, make her husband watch the kids for a couple hours, and she could read a book and have a glass of wine. I said, well, why don't you do that? She said, well, I can't do that. Well, I said, I think that that's what you, you probably need to do so that you can experience, you know, you know, that freedom to be able to love yourself in a way that, you know, makes you a better uh, mother and wife for your children, um, because we just can't, keep expending all this energy. So she came back a couple of weeks later and she looked at me and she said, I really dislike you. And I said, well, what did I do? She said, I realized something when you asked me to do that. It was very, very hard. And I did not feel worthy at all of that experience. And I said, 
but you are. She said, well, I know. And after 20 minutes of fighting with it, it really was very enjoyable. But it's getting to that point. It's making these choices to love, to, to, to do things that are acts of love freely for ourselves, and then also doing those things that are acts of love for other people. Because once we start to do that, right, once we're participating with love, we start to participate in the relationship that God has with himself as he makes a gift to himself in the, in the Trinitarian sense. And so um, it's no longer an intellectual battle. It's no longer an issue of whether or not heaven or hell exists because you start to taste it the more you increase in love. And that is the core message of this whole thing is that we must increase in love if we are to decrease in the fears that we are presented with. Because more time thinking about God or prayer leaves us less time to sin, more time doing things that are acts of love for ourselves and the people around us to rid ourselves of judgment and fear and pride, provide us with the ability to be a greater asset you know, to the people in our life and our family and our community, and also make us less afraid of death. The more you increase in love, the less you will fear death. And the less you fear death, well, then the devil doesn't have much of a hold on you because you're not afraid of what happens to you. And you are living in a, such a way that you are experiencing love go in and out through you. And so that experience is something that we should try to cultivate. And so, again, to take that from, you know, the mystics, especially St. Therese of Lisieux, which was her little way, we have to escape reliance on the mind and start making these little acts of love for ourselves things that we don't want to do, but if we really did love ourselves, we would be able to do it. So we rid ourselves of this locking up of judgment and fear and unworthiness and start to receive the joy that we're, we're able to experience. So thank you for joining me today, and I, I appreciate my, uh, uh, my, my, my co-leader here, uh, you know, the rooster, and uh, I, I hope you guys have a great day. Go and smuggle some hope wherever you can. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Smuggling Hope. If you want to maximize the impact of the podcast you just listened to, try to find one thing that you thought was helpful and teach and share it with somebody in your life. When you teach and share what you've learned, it stays with you, and it helps to internalize what we've learned and get that seed to grow. I hope that the seeds of hope continue to grow in your life.